Dear people of God, let me encourage you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Paul's epistle, his first epistle to the Corinthians. Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians in the 12th chapter. And of course, our text is verse 25, but I really want to look at this in the context of what Paul is saying in this portion of his epistle. So if you would, be attentive, please, to the reading of God's holy and infallible word. Hear the word of God. Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 12, beginning with verse 12, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division or schism in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. All flesh is as grass and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower thereof falls away. But the word of our God shall stand forever. Would you bow with me, and as I pray, I would, I would humbly request your prayers for the ministry of the Word. Let us pray. O oh, Holy Fathers, we bow in your presence corporately. We can think of no more appropriate plea to make before you than that which was expressed by the hymn writer. O send your spirit, O Lord, now unto me, that you may touch my eyes and make me see. 
Lord, I pray that for every single one of us in this place tonight. We thank you for all the dimensions and the mystery of your presence in the midst of your gathered people. And we pray that we may also know that wonderful and glorious reality of your word by the Spirit singling us out and shutting us in with yourself as though there were only two people in all of the universe each of us individually, and you, the true and living God. So send your spirit, we plead, as your word is preached. And we ask that our Lord Jesus Christ may be lifted up, receive the glory due unto his name. For we offer this our prayer in his name, and by his merits. Amen. One of the striking features that we find recurring time and time again throughout the New Testament scriptures is how God is pleased in his providence to use controversy within his church in order to bring clarity to doctrine and practice for his church. We see this, for example, in Acts chapter 15 with respect to the council of Jerusalem, and as well with Paul's epistle to the Galatians, from where we learn quite clearly that our justification before God is by faith alone, in Christ alone, based upon grace alone. And this feature is no less true with respect to Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, where among other issues plaguing the church, of which he writes in this epistle, he addresses this, the controversy of division or schism within this local body of believers at Corinth. And here in this passage, which I read in our hearing, Paul sets before us one of the best known illustrations of the New Testament in terms of the nature and the purpose of the body of Christ, the church. Now, those of you who have been attending regularly upon the ministry of the word in this place, you know that we're presently engaged in this series of these one another passages of scripture. And at the heart of these one another passages of scripture, we have what I think we can characterize as the major privileges and responsibilities of church membership. And so we have been treating these various categories concerning the duties we, you and I, have to one another. Now this evening we come to what has been designated as the eighth duty in this series. Namely, the care that we are to have for one another. And I want to address this tonight under three headings. First of all, I want to offer a brief word regarding the context of the passage I just read in terms of its overall meaning. And then secondly, by way of review and reminder, I want to underscore once again, and I have in mind Pastor Wagner's sermon on love one another, and then thirdly, I want to touch upon the duty that is underscored 
in this particular passage, that of care for one another. So then, let's look at a brief word regarding the context of this passage. God has made it very, very clear that while we come to know Christ individually, we do not live in Christ independently. We come together as a body of believers in the church. And it is not God's purpose that we should continue to live independently as believers in Christ. God has purpose from the very beginning to have a people for himself. And when God draws us as individuals to himself, he likewise draws us into the fellowship of others who have come to Christ as we ourselves. And that becomes overtly obvious to us when we read the New Testament because virtually all of the New Testament letters were written to churches. Not all of them, but most of them certainly were. And if the Apostle Paul makes anything clear in this passage in chapter 12, it is that the church is a society of people who are bound together by a common life. The rich imagery of a passage like 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 27, is an eloquent expression of that reality. We are to care for one another because of the relationship that we sustain to one another as members of the same body. That's Paul's overall point in this passage. The nature of the relationship of church members one to another determines their duty and responsibility to one another. We're bound together by a common life joined to Christ, our common head. And this is why, for example, in the 25th chapter of the Westminster Confession, and this is a section that sometimes gives pause to certain folk, but there we read in the 25th chapter, and this chapter is on the church, that the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. That's what gives us pause oftentimes. But when you think of it, if the church is the body of Christ and you're not part of that body, how can there be salvation for your soul? You're united to Christ, a common head, and being united to him, we're united one to another. And so our common head mandates to us that we are to conduct ourselves in ministry one to another. And I think it's significant to note that because of our responsibility to God within the framework of the church, the nature of our responsibilities grow out of the nature of the church. It is because the church is what it is that our duties to God as church members are what they are. And that same principle is true when we begin to consider and reflect upon our responsibilities to one another. The nature of our responsibilities to one another are what they are because of the relationship we bear to one another. 
because church membership has brought us into certain relationships with one another, our duties grow out of that relationship established by God. <clears throat> Verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 12, Paul puts it this way, Now you, that is we, are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So our responsibilities to one another grow out of our mutual union with Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. To be sure, this is not simply some attractive concept that we're considering. It's not simply poetic language, but rather it speaks to you and I of the great reality of the relationship which God bears to us through Jesus Christ's Son, and in turn, we, you and I, bear to one another. Now then, having looked at the uh, nature of our relationship as members of the same body, what is the primary responsibility that we have to one another? And this is what Pastor Wagner covered, uh, I think, in the very first sermon, and he did a very good job on it. But I think we need to be reminded of this by way of uh, reflection. And I want to insist with him that there is one encompassing duty that we all have to one another and which is expressed in the oft-repeated imperative, love one another. Again, that was the first one another duty that was covered by Pastor Wagner in this sermons. And we have been looking uh, looking in this series at some of the manifold ways, some of the various ways in which this is to be fulfilled. In other words, the Bible does not simply say, love one another, and whatever that means, you simply do it. That's not what the Bible does. As one man put, put it, love is not some self-interpreting code of ethics. Thus, the same Bible that teaches us that there is one supreme, predominant, all-encompassing duty that we have one to another, namely to love one another, then informs and, and norms for us the manifold ways in which this duty of love is to be fulfilled before God. God's law gives eyes to the command to love. The God who mandates for us this supreme duty to love one another has given eyes to that duty in his holy law and in the many New Testament precepts, read here the one to another series, the many New Testament precepts of his law in which he describes how love must act and conduct itself within the family of God. So then let's look at this one supreme, very briefly, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but this one supreme, all-encompassing duty we have to one another, and that is to love one another. And I want for us to consider very quickly, and without going into detail, let's reflect back to John 13 that Pastor Wagner touched upon, where we have this command to love one another. And I am offering to you, and I'm saying that this is the supreme predominant duty out of which all these other duties flow. 
And I think I have warrant to do so because of the command that we have in John 13. There's also another passage in Romans chapter 13, 8 through 10. Uh, Pastor Wagner has covered some of these, 1 Corinthians 13, just about the entire first epistle of John. But there are some, there is a number of passages throughout the New Testament that make it abundantly clear that we are to love one another. And it is that love out of which all of these other duties, one to another, flow. So let's look briefly at John 13, verse 31. There is our Lord is contemplating his own, and the betrayer has already made his exit from the room. Our Lord now speaks in language that surely arrested the attention of those present. Having spoken of the glorifying of God and of himself that will transpire... From his impending suffering, death, and resurrection, he says as his parting word, as it were, of his ethical directive to his own. He says a new commandment, verse 34, a new commandment I give you. Now it was not new in the sense that God had never commanded his people to love. The Old Testament teaches that the duty of the law is to love God and to love one's neighbor. That's not some new discovery, mind you, in the New Testament. But our Lord nonetheless calls the articulation of this duty in this context, and in particular, conduct, uh, in, in particular conjunction with the supreme manifestation of love with respect to his own self-giving death upon the cross, he calls it a new commandment. A new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, he says, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, please notice Three things that stand out in this passage very quickly. This is on the very surface of the text. If you read it closely, you really don't need my commentary. But first of all, we see the unique place of the duty. It is so unique, so predominant, and all-encompassing that it's called a new commandment. As though the whole of their duty is bound up in this commandment to love one another. That's the unique place of the duty. Then notice this breathtaking standard of the duty which the Lord identifies in verse 34b. That you love one another, how? Just as I have loved you. Now just contemplate for a moment what that must have meant to these disciples. What, what it would mean to them when they would see the Lord Jesus Christ bound by cords of love to his own. Of whom it is said, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Loved them enough to enter into the throes of Gethsemane. Love them enough to undergo the pain and the shame of open trial, of being stripped and beaten and spat upon, and the crown of thorns. Love them enough to be physically exposed, hanging upon a cross, being mocked and jeered. 
to be swallowed up in the darkness of God-forsakenness and abandonment. What a breathtaking standard the Lord sets before his disciples as their duty. You are to love one another. And he says, your love for one another is to draw its norm, Jesus is saying, from my love to you. And then notice thirdly, the profound effect of the duty when it is obeyed. By this, by what? By the community of my own people dwelling together in love, which in some measure, however imperfectly and poorly, we may do that, but truly, however it reflects my love to you by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So there's the unique place of the duty, new commandment, the breathtaking standard of the duty, just as I have loved you, and then the profound effect of the duty. It's the validation of our identity with Jesus Christ as his disciples. And then I want you to look Thirdly, let's consider the duty underscored in this passage, namely that of care for one another. And I think it's important for us to remember, how is the duty of love to be manifested? What does it look like? To love one another is to serve one another. To love one another is to forgive one another. To love one another is to submit to one another. Do you see then how all these New Testament precepts of one to another flow out of this supreme duty to love one another? That's what love looks like. And that's why we've been looking at this series very closely. So then, how are we to care for one another? Let's look at the duty underscored in the passage. The verb for care here, it simply means to have an anxious concern or care for its object. And here it refers to that object is that of other people. And the use of the verb in this context makes it clear that it is the kind of care or concern that to some extent or in some measure fills and or identifies with the emotions of another, whether it be of pain or whether it be of joy. For look at verse 26, which follows immediately on the heels of this command. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. But it is a duty that does far more than simply fill. Just as God's love and care for us is not a dormant principle devoid of doing, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave, so likewise our care for one another, if present, is something that moves us to action with respect to charitable regard for one another. The biblical concept that is addressed in these verses, though it is easy under, to understand, it is nonetheless foreign in our modern day culture. It is foreign to many of us, I suspect, and to many churches as well. 
And one of the reasons for that, I think, is something that is perhaps uniquely American. Now, what uniquely American thing could I be referring to? Individualism. Individualism. I am suggesting that is a uniquely American thing. And if there's one thing that has been born and bred and bred well, healthfully and successfully in so many cases, it is the importance of being able to stand on one's own and to accomplish the task set before us, which must be done. I remember sometime, sometime back in, well, it's been a long time back, it was in high school, playing football. I remember that whenever we needed a few yards for a first down, we had this one guy in our, in our, uh, on our team, and we nicknamed him Can Do. Can Do. We'd look at him and we'd say, Now, Freddie, we need the first down. We need it bad. It's third, it's third and three to go. We need you to pick up three yards. He'd say, Can Do. Can Do. And so that's the kind of individualism can do. But however, individualism, you see, taken to an extreme, as with so many things, it can prove unhelpful and even harmful and destructive. And then when individualism is married or wedded with consumerism and baptized into, quote, orthodoxy, especially in church life, then it makes it very difficult to receive the teaching here before us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Many people, simply put, have no concept of what it means to belong to a family. And the chaos that often happens in the nuclear family is also quite prevalent or commonplace in the church family. One needs only to look around and listen in order to learn and to understand that people change congregations and pastors almost as readily as fad and fashion changes today. Often people think as individuals, well, we have individual desires and we have individual preferences. And after all, we're Americans. We have the right to choose. That is part and parcel of our lives as American citizens. I don't like the way this or that is being done. I and my family, we're out of here. Well, how does that mentality square with 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 25? That there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Extreme individualism can lead to isolation, and isolation can lead to division in the body of Christ. It was not without reason, you see, that the apostle declares in the same letter back in chapter 10, verses 23 through 24, all things, he says, are lawful, but not all things are helpful. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things edify, not all things build up. And then he says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5. Love, Paul declares, does what? He says, does not insist on its own way. 
Moreover, Paul complains of those in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 21 who seek their own interest and not those of Jesus Christ. Extreme individualism promotes a party spirit that leads to isolation. And isolation, Paul is saying in this passage, of any of the parts of God's body is a strategy for failure. Isolation is the purpose of the evil one to divide God's people. He loves to divide. He loves to separate. Caring for one another is God's purpose, but isolation from one another is the purpose of the evil one. And therefore it follows that meaningful involvement in the body of Christ cannot go hand in hand with the sense of Lone Ranger mentality. And that's what we find in verse 14, and especially as Paul underscores it in the 15th verse. Perhaps there's someone here tonight that feels you think perhaps you have no place in the body of Christ, that you're something of a spare part, that you belong somewhere, say, in the trunk of last resort, as it were. And if you're living under that particular mistaken notion, you need to understand that this is not the case. Rather, on the contrary, there is a peculiar and a unique place for you because God chose you as you are, made you as you are, and wants you to be an active part of his body as he has designed and desires. Moreover, none of us should feel bowed down under a sense of inferiority. In this passage, the Apostle makes it abundantly clear, the Apostle Paul does, that there's a place for everyone in the body of Christ. There's a place for you in the body of Christ. For all the parts of his body are to be involved in care one for another. Verses 14 and 15, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body, Paul says. And if the ear should say, because I am not I, I do not belong to the body, would that make it any less a part of the body? You see the apostle's argument here? You have a vital role, he is saying, to play in the mutual care one for another. Regardless of the part you play, you are no less important, he's arguing. And according to Paul, you, verse 22, he says it outright, you are an indispensable part to this body. Now, you may not be a singer, you may not be a preacher, you may not be a Sunday school teacher, you may not be an upfront person, as it were. You may not fit the category of anything like this, but God knows that you have a role to play and where he desires for you to be. Now, the church is not like a football team where you have some first stringers and some second stringers, and should I say it, bench warmers. When I was in high school, we had this one guy. He was a bench warmer. He had no desire to be in the game, <laughs> but he wanted to be on the team because there was something that went with being on the team that gave him an image of respectability, I suppose, uh, in high school. 
And he would run out on the field dressed out just like all of us were before a game. And he was all excited and everything. But he never played a single game. He always sat on the bench. He was a bench warmer. God intends for none of us to be bench warmers in his church. He wants every one of us to be active upon the field loving and caring one for another. Now, the flip side, I suppose, of that is this, that when men and women are going to be meaningfully involved in the body of Christ, that kind of involvement can be hindered by these two things. The kind of involvement that can be, in, that can be hindered by inferiority on the one hand and by superiority on the other hand. Notice verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Now the picture that Paul paints for us here is to be sure ridiculous on the very surface of things. And yet that's the apostle's whole point in this passage. When did your eye ever lay hold of anything? Or when did your head ever take a step anywhere? He says the thought, the very thought of it is ridiculous. And the problem with superiority is that superiority robs one and others of involvement in meaningful fellowship where we care one for another. And those two things, a sense of inferiority on the one hand and a sense of superiority on the other hand, are always present in little bits and pieces in the body of Christ. We should be conscious of those and beware of them. And one of the keys to success, and I say this in bringing all of this to a close this evening, one of the keys to success in melding ourselves together and in learning to assume our responsibilities, it is not by trying to play the person who says, well, you know, I can't do anything, and who is falsely humble, but that we need to assume our responsibilities, and yet at the same time, accept our limitations. It seems to me that absence of involvement in the body of Christ and caring one for another is due almost in every case to those two things. Either someone refuses to assume a responsibility for something which God has enabled them to do or that they are unprepared to accept their limitations and continue doing what they ought not to be doing. Now it is within this framework, dear people, that we, you and I, learn to deal with the vision and in which we are called to care one for another. How we care for one another is to be the same care, but it's not always going to look the same. You say, why is that? It's because our needs are diverse. Our needs are different. There are some people who are in extraordinary circumstances of need. And then there are some people who are in ordinary circumstances of need. For example, extraordinary might be a financial need that we're not ordinarily in. 
And then there may be other needs in ordinary situations. But the point of Paul in this passage is that every single one of us has a role and a part to play in the caring and the nurturing of one another. And that is one of the multitude of ways in which we, conf- in which we fulfill the command of our Lord Jesus Christ that we love one another. May God help us all to do. Let us pray.